0: Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another edition of Work Human Radio. I am your host, Mike Wood, and I am joined by Sarah Payne, who is our managing editor of our blog. And Sarah,
1: this week we talked to Dr. Kelly Monahan from Deloitte, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about her session, which I love the title of. Her session at Work Human, mm-hmm. right? Okay. What was the title of her session? She's actually co-presenting with Jen Fisher, who's also a Deloitte, but it's called Squad Goals the powerful impact of relationships
0: at work. Oh, cool. So this is like a sneak preview to what Kelly's going to be talking about at WorkHuman. If you have not signed up for WorkHuman yet, please go to www.workhuman.com. Get your seat. It's going to be probably the best conference of 2019. It could be the best conference ever. I mean, it's not like I work for the conference. And we're not even over there <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So... <laughs> Here is Sarah's interview with Dr. Kelly Monaghan of Deloitte, and we hope that we will see you at Work Human in March.
1: So, I just first wanted to say thank you so much for joining us on Work Human Radio, Kelly. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm
0: really excited about our conversation.
1: So, I love that you started as an HR practitioner and now you're a researcher at Deloitte. So, I thought we could start by you telling us a little bit about your career change and your work at Deloitte. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do so.
0: And I know it's not the most linear career path so far. So, you know, I started in undergrad and got a degree in business administration and, you know, was a bright eyed, eager college student and started actually working in a marketing organization right after college. And I quickly became much more interested in how work was accomplished. I felt like the textbooks had underestimated how much relationships and leadership actually influenced someone's ability to do work. And so that really is what led me to more of the talent in HR profession is I felt that that was a much better place for me to really apply the principles that I saw happening and try to actually influence and create change. And so I moved and had a great talent executive take a chance on me. And even though I didn't necessarily have that formal training yet in HR, brought me on as an early career generalist and you know, quickly became involved in M and A work and actually building out offices and hiring and firing and unfortunately going through a whole process of layoffs. And so during this time where I was learning so much within the HR profession, I realized it was grounded in a lot of good intentions, but didn't necessarily have the right science and data to help justify and understand some of these very complex decisions that were happening. Anytime you deal with humans, it's messy, and so that really led me to go back and complete my PhD. In organizational behavior, and really get a better understanding of why work can get so messy, and why it's so good when it's good, and you know, and why we struggle at times. And that led me to Deloitte, where I've been for the last four years, and have the privilege and opportunity to study the future of work. So I work within the Center for Integrative Research, and each day I wake up thinking about what is work going to look like in the future, and most importantly, how do we make sure that we create a future of work that humans thrive and flourish? And we strike that right balance between technology that we know is coming in the workplace and that's upending the work we do, the workforce itself and workplace. But how do we keep that human element back in the conversation? And what does that actually look like now that we have this technology to take over some of those less human and routine tasks? And so I think this is a great opportunity to really think through bringing the human back within the future of work conversations.
1: So I'm sure you have a lot of big thinking in your research on the future of work, you know, everybody's talking about AI. Is it hyped up? Is it not? What would you say is the most surprising data point you've come across in your research? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, one of the things
0: that surprised me, and this is during my work at Deloitte, a research study I'm currently engaged in, is I'm really trying to understand what makes work meaningful. And so I approached it from a very individualistic lens and I thought, okay, it's got to be, you know, we have a lot of conversation around being able to pursue your passion, being able to have autonomy in the workplace, being able to have a flexible work schedule. You know, so I kind of had that initial reaction of, okay, if we can just create these environments where people can pursue their passion, have autonomy, engage in a level of flexibility, that should directly lead to meaningful work. And so I thought it was a pretty sound hypothesis So I think what surprised me the most when I actually ran the research study is I decided to throw in at the time a a control of variable just to control the individual's sense of relationships within the workplace. So whether or not they felt respected, I mean, very basic questions, whether or not they felt that others around them cared about their well-being and wanted to see them succeed, and whether or not they felt within their groups, their teams, that a diversity of thought was respected and actually encouraged. And so it was very surprising to me when I found that meaningful work was almost entirely captured in this relationship variable that I had thrown in the study. And so what I found is even if you are the most passionate growth mindset person and you have this ability to to learn and think critically and really excel as an individual performer, if you are unable to work well with others and feel respected by others within your work group, you're unable to actually experience meaningful work. And at least that's what my data is saying and showing within the research. And so this is really surprising because I think even though I understand we are social beings, I even underestimate how much we are social beings. And this notion that we're this isolated individual completing a task is really just a myth. And so that's been really surprising and has led over the last, you know, this is about two years ago, I discovered this and has led me down this whole relationship path ever
1: since. So basically, meaningful work doesn't happen alone.
0: It's a great way to summarize meaningful work, definitely. I would say very confidently does not happen alone. It's
1: really interesting because we talk about relationships at work, but what does that mean? And I know your talk actually at Work Human in March is with Jen Fisher and you're talking about the power of relationships in the workplace. So is this about encouraging more work friendships or is it something deeper? You know, it's funny. I,
0: I think there is a lot of confusion out there and just around, you know, what are the boundaries of these relationships at work? And I think one of the worst things I think I ever learned while supporting a CFO was, you know, as we're going through these tough M&A, you know, merger and acquisition decisions, he said to me, Kelly, it's all business. It's not personal. And, you know, we almost draw this boundary as if we have our personal lives and we enter into the workplace and we become, you know, I don't know, maybe these, you know, robotic people that, you know, aren't either allowed to have friends or we don't elevate relationships. We think that's almost dangerous because we won't work as efficiently or be as productive. But I think there's a balance because there's a lot of research that shows if you get a bunch of friends together, you know, there's so much comfortableness there that you may not actually accelerate the performance that's necessary within a work environment. You need to be able to have some of that creative tension. And so what I find in it, and I think as we talk about relationships at work, how I define that within my research is really the ability to create social capital when we walk in the door. And so what does that mean? Is really being able, to, it's very simple, but much harder to actually operationalize. But when I walk in the door, do I trust the people I work with? It really comes down to trust. And that's what I think essentially social capital is about, is do I feel, again, going back to that research, do I feel that the people around me actually care about my well-being, that I am in a safe environment, that you know people are not out to compete with me? or harm me, but really want to see me succeed within this environment, those are the type of relationships that I think are necessary to accelerate performance in today's environments. And I think, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later, but I think so much of our current organizational culture and practices are actually set up for the exact opposite, to remove any sense of personal interaction and really not have those environmental conditions to actually create social capital and trust in the workplace, which I think is going to be a big challenge in the future of work.
1: How does your research on teams and these connections and this social capital, how does that impact how companies should start recognizing and rewarding their people?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, it's funny as we start even talking about this notion of social capital, you know, we don't even think about that in our current day reward recognition programs that I've seen in most of our clients. So, you know, I think a lot of times we're blinded and, and myself included as a researcher by this very... Western lens is very individualistic, and even industrial air lens of how we think about recognizing and rewarding people. We think about it, okay. What did you know this person do? And in many ways, especially being in the HR side of things and actually being at the table around these performance management conversations and trying to determine, back you know how much does this person rank you know compared to others? You know, we presume that's just like this very individualistic task, and that the enablers around them. That actually enable their performance and sometimes that's not seen. I was talking to my director the other day while we were up in Boston and you know he said sometimes he thinks one of the most undervalued people within who are often not recognized are those that just show up with a positive attitude who are encouraging and actually enable good ideas to go through the organization. And so how do we recognize and reward those people who may not you know, necessarily be the most charismatic person in the room or may not necessarily be working on this core critical project with a lot of exposure. But those people who are doing those core critical tasks, how you know, those are often and almost always enabled by a team around them. And so, and again, we see this at the leadership level, you know, from a CEO perspective, you know, we place a lot of emphasis on whether or not one individual can actually move an organization and change share price and capture market share. But the reality is that CEO is very limited. You know, I just read an academic study that said they have about less than 20% of actual impact as an individual on the broader organization. And so that means we've really got to move to more of a team-based mindset and figure out how do we recognize and reward the team and how do we actually reward and recognize good teammates, not necessarily the most individualistic high performer, which really requires a complete mindset
1: shift for how we think about performance management today. I like what you said about how do we recognize the people that enable the great work? Because I think A lot of that is about the people that make the culture, you know, they make it more positive and, you know, they allow those relationships to flourish. I think that's a lot of times undervalued, but a really important part of what makes a really good place to work. So I wholeheartedly agree.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And those are the people who tend to have the highest levels of social capital within the organization, which, you know, I think in the future is going to actually be the most important capital. That will differentiate organization. So, absolutely.
1: So, my next question—I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm going to ask <laughs> it anyway—is performance management broken, and if so, what do you think needs to change?
0: Yes. So, you know, it's funny. Performance management seems to
1: be, you know, one
0: of the hot topics that that has been a hot topic for a while, and I'm not sure we still have quite figured out the answer. And so, what I think is broken is really the underlying assumptions around performance management systems in today's workplace. So they're really based on two core assumptions that we often don't, as we walk into the workplace, don't necessarily think about. The first is our performance management systems are built on the assumption that people don't want to work. And so we presume that work is this laborious activity that if humans were given the choice, they would spend all their time in leisure and not necessarily work, which I'll talk about in a second. And then I think that's actually a false assumption because as a lot of positive psychology and a lot of behavioral economic research has shown... People do inherently want to work. They do want to show up and have a sense of mastery and autonomy and sense of connectedness with others. But that assumption actually carries a lot of weight that we don't realize. And the second assumption that we've built all of our performance management systems around is this idea that without close supervision, people will not act in the best interest of the organization. And so we must, you know, incentivize and create command and control structures. Because, again, people don't want to work. And then when they come in the workplace, they might utilize the firm's resources for their own benefit and not the benefit of others. And so when we start to understand these were actual assumptions that these organizational psychologists way back in the 20s, you know, this on, we realize performance management today is broken. Now, the good news is there's a lot of psychology research that started coming out in the 50s and 60s that said, hey, you know what? People do want to work. And if we give if we trust people most often they will do the right thing on behalf of the firm because there's a sense of social pressure that they don't want to necessarily be seen as an odd man out or you know acting in a deviant way that actually creates a lot of social anxiety for them. So if we can actually change performance management to presume people want to work and actually start leveraging inherent motivators as opposed to always, I mean, the knee-jerk reaction oftentimes is you know we need to pay them more. Or we need to put them on a performance plan and kind of evoke fear or else, you know, they're not going to do the right thing. I think that's why we see this this disengagement narrative within the workplace. We live in a very democratic society, but yet when we come into our organizations, we don't feel that same democracy. You know, all of a sudden we enter into these very authoritative structures. Mm -hmm. And so I think how do we leverage the best of people where we know on a bell curve, the majority will want to do the right thing? And how do we redesign performance management to leverage that as opposed to assuming the opposite, if that makes sense?
1: Totally. And I think that leads to my next question. You write that we need to start measuring the equivalent of assist in the workplace. So can you explain that a bit? Yeah. So it's funny, I, you know, going back to sports and sports psychology, because
0: that's where a lot of the performance research is done within the academic world. And so really interesting, what can we learn from high-performing teams in the sports industry? You know, when I think about sports and specifically, let's, you know, anchor back on basketball, for example, you do have some teammates coming in and out. You do have some people who tend to be really strong individual performers, but yet still have to work within a team environment. And so, you know, when I was thinking through and reading this interesting article, Adam Grant out of Warren actually contributed to, was thinking through the notion you could be LeBron James and you could be the best, you know, scorer on the team. But if we just measured how much LeBron James scored each game, that wouldn't give us a holistic picture of his actual performance on the team. And so there's nowhere in sports, unless it's an individual sport, where you just measure individual performance. Instead, you're always measuring some enabler of team performance as well. And so in basketball, you know, or soccer being assist. So how many times does that person actually pass off the ball, pass off the task, and enable the other person to perform well? And I think in the workplace, that's a nice analogy for us to think through. Today, the unit of analysis in many organizations is no longer the individual. It is the team. And so what does that assist measure look like where we see people enabling others, handing off work, handing off tasks in a way that allows the others, whether it's another individual or other team, to be successful? And I'm just not sure from an organizational design perspective and performance management perspective, we've quite incorporated that assist in the workplace. There is one organization that is starting to do that in the technology space. And whether rather than just mat- measuring individual performance, 50% of their performance evaluations at the end of the year now is a simple question, but ask, how well does this person enable others' success at the firm? And we're seeing a huge culture shift as people kind of break out of their individual silos and get off, you know, off their individual desk and actually start building that social capital and connections, because I would say that's being equivalent of the Cyst being measured in the workplace. And, you know, from what I understand from the client, employees are much happier and feel much more at rest in some ways, because the firm is recognizing this is a team performance. It's not just you as an individual.
1: I also think about our product, social recognition, and how that brings to light those assists in the workplace, you know, when you're able to recognize your peers for helping you on a project. And in the moment, I think that's kind of a nice way to visualize the assist, which is sort of another way to think
0: about it. Great product and great example of, and hopefully firms, you know, and organizations incorporate more of that because you almost need to be nudged in some ways to think about that as an Mm -hmm. individual. So I think having some sort of social recognition platform and product helps enable that within the firm.
1: And so my last question for you is something we like to ask all our work human speakers. What does a more human workplace mean to you? Mm-hmm. I love this question.
0: I think a more human workplace looks where, and I'm funny, I'm probably because I'm a bit biased studying the future of work, is where we're leveraging technology to do the things that humans don't do well and don't really bring out the best in us. You know, we've designed our current day organizations a lot around these industrial paradigms and structures that, quite frankly, are out of date and actually make us more like robots. You know, we do routine tasks. We don't think we don't have that social connection, the things that make us human. And so I'd love now we're at a place where makes me so excited about artificial intelligence and cognitive technologies is they can come in and do the work that robots and computers should be doing. And then that opens up a brand new conversation for us of how do we create a more human workplace where we can leverage intellectual curiosity, creativity, empathy, and really allow humans to flourish when they come into the workplace. So I would love, you know, going back to before where I said the CFO said to me, it's all business, not personal. I would love to change that paradigm upside down on its head. And I think work is some of the most personal engagements that we have it's an extension of our identity, is an extension of our social interactions, it's an extension of who we are as an individual and what we can contribute to broader society. And so I would love to see technology taking over a lot of what humans do today and actually unleashing a whole new paradigm of work where humans truly flourish in our workplace.
1: I think that's a great way to end. So Kelly, thank you so much for joining us and I'm looking forward to your presentation at Work Human. I'm looking forward to being
0: at Work Human this year, and thank you so much for having me. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human March 18th through the 21st in Nashville. Visit workhuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2019.